0: To the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. So, I have an almost six year old and an almost two year old. That means my house has a lot of tears. Sometimes they're for genuine things like oh, I'm bleeding and, you know, losing a limb. And sometimes it's things that seem less genuine to me, like the existence of gravity. Like, I can't fix that. It's not going away. We have to learn to deal with gravity. Or things like the cookie is gone. Like, well, yes, that's because you ate it. But the still, the overflow of tears because there was a cookie and now it is no longer here and the injustice that that brings is just too much. <laughs> and so it seems like a regular occurrence is how do we deal with these injustices of the world, whether it's perceived or real, <laughs> whether it seems like it's the end of the world or not. My, my almost two-year-old has gotten to this point where she has a very strong sense of what she thinks should be or shouldn't be. And when I have the audacity to tell her no, she lets me know what she thinks, usually with this look of amazement where she then throws herself on the ground and weeps as if her heart is breaking. And usually it's because you know I won't let her touch the saucepan on the grill, or I'm not letting her climb a ladder, or I'm not letting her eat something that's been on the floor for a couple of days. And it's just too much for her to handle. But we have gotten better at understanding the different cries. There's the cry of, my brother stole my car. Then there's the cry of, this isn't doing what I think it should. My shoe is supposed to come back on when I want it to, even though I just put it on, then I took it off, and then I put it on, and then I took it off, and it's not doing what it's supposed to do, but nobody knows what it's supposed to do. And then there's a cry of, oh no, there's blood can always tell the difference of this is an actual cry and not just a my life is falling apart cry, right? And that's the one I've got to run. And as we grow and go through different seasons with my children, the things we cry about change and shift, right? It, it, it changes from darn gravity to why won't this kid play with me at school? Why don't they like me? And those are harder questions, and it's just, you know, this is the same, te- it's, we still have the tears, we have the mess, but the conversations around it change. And I still, as their mother, have to be like, how do I help you walk through this process of pain? Because it's not going away, right? And yet, we seem as human beings to have this sense that we shouldn't experience pain, right? All this, like, something happens, and it's like, why everything's going the way that they're going? This isn't the way life is supposed to be. I shouldn't suffer. I shouldn't experience evil. People shouldn't die. Relationships shouldn't end. Things shouldn't hurt me. And, for on the one hand, it's true. We weren't made to go through these things. It's a consequence of the fall. And so we have this inborn sense that, This isn't the way that God designed the world to work. And that's why we have this sense of shock. Even though, statistically, how many of us are going to die someday? (laughs) Right? And yet still we get surprised when it happens. Because we weren't made to have it happen. And so it still surprises us. And so until we get to the other side of heaven, and God remakes things back into the image that he originally intended them to be, we still have to deal with it doesn't make it any easier, but it's an unavoidable fact of life. And sometimes it's a lot easier to wrap our minds around than others. One of my favorite books is uh, C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain be honest, I love everything C.S. Lewis writes because he's brilliant. However, this book I really loved because he just he's so smart and he just logically goes through, this is why we experience pain, this is how God uses it, this is how God works through us in this process and answering that you know long-standing question that people have asked for generations of how can a loving God allow pain and evil and suffering into the world? And he goes through it all and it's so logical. But There's another book that he wrote, which I think is even more powerful, and it's called A Grief Observed. Because in that book, logic fails. And he talks about the raw, visceral emotion of grief. C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life, and he married very, very late in life. And in essence, it was a marriage of convenience. He had this friend who was another author who had moved to England, and they liked hanging out and writing books together and having intellectual debates, and then one day she found out that she was going to get kicked out of the country because her visa wasn't renewed. So, C.S. Lewis fixes the problem. He marries her. (laughs) And the woman named Joy Davidman, and that's how the marriage started. A few months into their marriage, where they actually weren't even living together, She was diagnosed with breast cancer, and they said she was going to die. And that was the moment that C.S. Lewis realized he was in love with her. It was through that reality that he was going to lose her that he recognized how invaluable she was. They were only married for four years, but it was a vibrant, rich four years of marriage that transformed his life. And he walked with her through the whole process of her dying. And that really reflected on and impacted the view of his relationship with her. After he died, he just sat down in a notebook and started writing out his thoughts. And that ended up being published under another name until later on when they actually said, oh, this is who wrote it. Uh, but C.S. Lewis wrote the Grief, A Grief Observed, and it's just his thoughts where he... Ask the hard questions where he, you know, lifts up, lifts up his fist to God and goes, Where are you? Why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? Why do you give me something so good and then take it away? And he asks silly questions, he asks regular questions, and he walks through what it looks like to grieve. He knows why. Pain and death exist. He can give you theological and intellectual debates that will send you in circles, but in the face of raw pain, those things don't really matter as much because you're just in that process of bleeding internally. The beginning of the book starts like this. He says, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me, and I find it hard to take in what anybody says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet, I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty, If only they would talk to one another and not to me. And that's the raw, vulnerable moment of a man going, I don't know what to do with this. At the end, as he goes through, I mean, it's a tiny little book, and at the end, he finds that sense of peace. He finds that sense of okayness, or as okay as you can possibly be after something like that. And by... Peace, not necessarily the sense that, oh, everything is fine, but that sense of peace that transcends understanding, which recognizes that things are not okay. But God is still God, and he's still here in the not-okayness, which is a deeper sense of peace than can be experienced in any other way. Now, uh, Joy Davidson's son, so C.S. Lewis's stepson, in the introduction to that book, writes reflecting on his own experience watching his mother die that I had yet to learn that all human relationships end in pain. It is the price that our imperfection has allowed Satan to extract from us for the privilege of love. I'll read it one more time. I had yet to learn that all human relationships end in pain. It is the privilege, or it is the price that our imperfection has allowed Satan to extract from us, for the privilege of love. Um. There's that sense that it's not the way it should be, because it's not, but it's that unavoidable flip side of love. How do you love someone without pain? Because everyone you love will at some day no longer be with you. So does that mean you love them less? Does that mean you somehow put up a barrier to protect yourself from experiencing that kind of gut-wrenching pain? And that's the thing is then you miss out the experience of true love, the experience of that oneness with God and with other people that is only experienced through this transcendent love that God gives? is with us despite our imperfections, our sin, our finiteness, our our humanness. It goes beyond that. And that's, I think, part of why it breaks us so much is because you have this all-encompassing, divine experience of love that is so far beyond our humanness that we can't even comprehend it. Recently, during a time of prayer, God spoke to me about my praying, and he says, he said to me, Tara, what if the answer to your prayer is your own brokenness? What if that is the gift? Are you going to accept that as the answer? And I had to stop and chew on that for a while going, do I really want to keep praying if that is the, the gift, that is the answer, that is what God is leading me into? But then it was that recognition that it was the gift that was In those spaces, God wanted to meet me. He wanted to speak to me. He wanted to give me something greater than I had yet, even if the cost was me experiencing something painful. And so lately, I found myself thinking through this connection between how our experiences of grief and pain impact our faith and our relationship with God. How do we find ourselves in these raw, visceral times where we see how the world is not the way it's supposed to be? relationships that you think should last forever, don't. Where the way that you think the world works or the way that you think that you should work in the world, the way that things are supposed to go, don't go the way that you think that they should. And somehow in the middle of that, God is still God. And how that impacts our journey of faith. And it's not an easy journey, right? But it teaches us something that we can't learn at other times. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. There's something profound about being with people during a time of grief and a time of mourning. You, you learn them in a different way than you would otherwise. I mean, we all have a party, Right? We all like going to weddings, we like going to birthday parties, we like going to celebrations. We like sharing with people in laughter and joy, but you only see part of people during that time. When you're with someone during a time of loss and mourning and hardship and struggle, you see a completely different side of them than you would otherwise, and relationships are developed in a different way than they would be otherwise. There is so much that can be learned in those seasons. Uh, I'm a cultural anthropology teacher, which means I spend a lot of time thinking about how people work, and from a global perspective, what is it that we share as human beings, what are the things that we do differently. And every semester, I start my class with the exact same article. It's an article that compares the funeral traditions of a people group in the US with a people group in Southeast Asia. And the point of the article is, The stuff that you do seems weird to other people, just like the stuff that other people do seems weird to you. But if you understand it from inside that people, it starts to make sense because they have their own world, their own symbols, their own way of doing things that make sense to them. And everybody's weird to somebody else, right? And what I love about this article is that it cracks open conversations and it teaches me my students in a way that nothing else could. Because what better way to start off a new semester than, hey, let's talk about death. It's been fascinating, because every semester, I have completely different people with a completely different perspective. I had the one semester, I had a mortician in my class. She told us all the kinds of ways people get buried. I had no idea. Other semesters, I'll have nurses, and they can talk through what it's like to watch people die. I had other classes where I had people who had never been to a funeral, and they're in their 20s. I had other people that were talking about, these are the people that I've lost, and this is what I've experienced. And I had other people, when I did this class in Uganda, that was a whole other experience of, this is what funerals have looked like for us, this is our our view of the spirit world. Every time I see the people with which I'm I'm speaking with, and working with, and, and teaching, through their reflecting on, Life and death. And that's a true thing that we see in anthropology and archaeology is how much of what we value in life is reflected in our views of death. I mean, that's all archaeologists do, right? We dig up dead people to see what can we learn about them after they're dead. Because we, when we grieve, we show what we find important about life. We show what we believe about the afterlife. We show what we believe about people. We, we, we symbolically recreate community in our traditions that we hold. And I've found that there's this paradox that if you want to see what someone finds worth living for, you find what they find worth dying for. Shakespeare, in Much Ado About Nothing, wrote, For it so falls out that what we have we prize not to the worth, whiles we enjoy it, but being lacked and lost, why then, we rack the value. Then we find the virtue that possession would not show us, whiles it was ours. He says, while you have it, you don't appreciate it. You don't appreciate it till it's gone. And there's that truth to that, where you never know how good food tastes until you're really hungry, right? Who's ever made the mistake of going shopping at the grocery store while hungry? Yeah, then food tastes really good. Or how sweet sleep is when you're not allowed to take a nap, right? Or you've been sleep-deprived for a few days, right? Or how good that shower is after you're really, really dirty. There was uh, a year that we spent living in Indiana, and for my husband, growing up in Uganda, where it's perpetually 80 degrees on the equator, and for me, growing up in Southern California, where our seasons go hot, fire, and wind, <laughs> it was a new experience, because there, we got there, we're working outdoor education, meaning we're outside all day, and our first week, it snowed. And we said, we're supposed to be outside all day in the snow. We're going to die. But then this magical thing happened called spring. Things came alive. All these trees that looked dead all of a sudden got leaves. The forest erupted in so many wildflowers, and it was spectacularly beautiful. And then the summer came, and it was 105 with full humidity, and we said, why do people live here? But then the fall came, and even the forest dying was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen because everything turned colors. It was so short. It didn't last very long, and then all of a sudden it got really stinking cold again. But that spring and that fall were so spectacularly beautiful, but you'd never appreciate that beauty as much if it lasted forever, right? It's because it's short that it's so precious. And it's because you have those extremes, the hot and the cold, that you can understand those very short days where it actually is a good temperature even more, right? And that's one of the true things of life is when we go through those times of heartache and pain, we appreciate the good times so much more. We see things in a different way. We're given a a sense of new eyes. Um, I remember going through some seasons where I was struggling with a lot of things, and in those seasons, I saw the world in a slightly different way, where all of a sudden the hills were more beautiful because I was so in need of being in the mountains. And they... Mountains that I had passed every day for years all of a sudden became the most beautiful things I'd ever seen, and I had never noticed them before. It was that season of grieving that gave me eyes to appreciate the beauty in the world that I couldn't experience otherwise. It changed me in a way that I had not anticipated or expected. And there's that, that sense that, I mean, that's the paradox. How do we experience life without the reality of death? How do we experience true joy without sadness? It's that range of the human experience that helps make us the people that God made us to be, right? The people who have gone through times of illness know health. They value it in a different way. The parent who has lost a child appreciates their children in a different way. It's not that the rest of us don't appreciate their children, it's just that sense of loss makes us appreciate what we have. Now, sometimes the pursuit of happiness can be a kind of bondage, right? Where we will avoid anything that even smells of pain or discomfort because we have this idea that we should always be happy. We should always have positive emotions. We should never experience the negative emotions connected with loss. And that can rob us from being able to have those experiences that transform us and give us those roots and that depth and this ability to see world in a different way. There's, um, And there's this thing too that sometimes people think that when you experience happiness, that should be the only emotion. But in reality, emotions are complicated, right? We can experience happiness at the same time that we experience sadness. There's that bittersweetness that we can have at certain seasons, especially like going through a season of transition. From one season to another where we're going through a time of change, all of a sudden we can just have multiple things going on. Like think of a wedding, right? A wedding is in essence the death of, of life as a single person and the birth of a new family. And so you have things that you're letting go of and your things you're moving into. It's happy and it's sad, both at the same time. There's a lot of good things that are no longer going to be in your life, and there's a lot of new challenges that are going to be faced. That doesn't mean that it's bad, it just means it's complicated, because we're people and life is complicated, right? And it's that being able to recognize that all those things can exist at once, and being able to find endings and beginnings as going hand-in-hand hand and being interchangeable and being all part of the circle of life. Now, psychologists talk about there being five stages to grief, okay? The five stages that they talk about are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And they this came from psychologists who studied people who are going through a process of grieving death. Okay, But I think it's also applicable to just loss in general. I mean, I've seen these stages applied to culture shock. Like Culture shock, you're basically, it's a death of the world that you thought it was, the way that you thought the world works and who you are in the world and your community and all that, basically your sense of reality. And turning everything upside down and then figuring out this is who you are now. And it it follows a similar kind of thing or sense of, you know, those changing from one season to another. You know, you graduate from college, you move across the country, um, starting a new job. There's, 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 anytime there's change or loss of a certain kind, there's a sense of grief attached to it. And you see these stages happen, right? And they're not necessarily linear. Like sometimes we think, oh, I can check that box off. I've been angry for a day. Now we're done. We're gonna move on to something else, right? Oh, I'm done. I get my gold star. I've completed all five stages of grief. No, sometimes it's cyclical. Sometimes you, you skip a stage. Sometimes you can spend a really long time in one stage. And sometimes, after you think everything is good, the stage will come back and bite you. <laughs> but that's, that's part of the human experience, and what psychologists would argue is that part of accepting loss and grief is going through all those stages. If you try to live perpetually in denial, you miss that opportunity to grow and grieve and mourn and move past it. Now, it's also worth saying it's a mess, right? When people are going through a time of grief, we are disasters. We don't necessarily behave in normal ways. We don't necessarily act like nice people. That's just part of the process of grieving, is going through that. And sometimes the person that you come out being on the other side is different than the person you were to begin with. And that's important for us to know, especially as we walk with people who are going through a hard time as well. Because sometimes it's like that, you know, come on, you've been in the stage long enough, move on, be better. And it's like, I'm just not there yet, right? you gonna love me in my mess? Or (laughs) like, what are we gonna do about this? Um, And as I was going through the Bible, I had a hard time choosing which verses to stick with because almost every verse, er, or every verse, every book of the Bible has grief in it somewhere in some way, shape, and form because from the beginning to the end, we have the human condition, which is we're a mess. So what I've been reading a lot lately are the prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, this, this, this right in the middle of the Bible. You have these prophets who spent an extended period of time talking about their grief over the loss of their world. Basically what you had happen was God in the beginning said, hey Israel, if you do what I say, things will go good. If you don't do what I say, you're going to get conquered and lose everything. So what do the people of Israel do? We go through cycles of doing what God says and not doing what God says and when you don't do what God says, then they are experience losing everything, right? So we have the people of Israel finally get taken over by Assyria, Judah gets taken over by Babylon and then Persia and basically the entire Jewish people are, have their world turn on its heads. Most of the elite people are sent into um, forced exile across the various nations that have conquered them. The temple is destroyed. The only people that are left in the land are the very, very poor. And this is after extended sieges and times of famine. And so basically everything is destroyed. Everybody has lost somebody. Things aren't the way that they used to be before. And so the prophets had the joy of knowing it was coming and not being able to stop it. (laughs) And so you see a lot of their writings saying, This is what's coming. People, change what you're doing, or this is what will happen. And then you had, especially Jeremiah, he had the worst of it because he not only said it was coming, but then he had to see it happen (laughs) and experience it. That's why some uh, people call him the weeping prophet. He's also the one that wrote the book of Lamentations, which the entire book of Lamentations is Jeremiah lamenting or being sad over what has happened to his people. Right? And so this is a sense of communal grief. We are grieving not just individual grievances, but corporate, communally. We, as a people, have experienced this. And in the midst of that, the prophets don't just speak about their grief, they also speak about God's comfort, God's hope, and the restoration that will come. Uh, Isaiah, in 53, three through four, talks about the promised savior. And this is the passage sometimes called The Suffering Servant. But in prophesying about the coming of Jesus, Isaiah writes that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We have a Savior who intimately knows grief more than any of us ever will because he carried not only his own, but the grief, the sin, the pain, the death of every single one of us, of the entire world, upon him. He... We see in the Gospels that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He saw the state of his people and he knew what was coming and he broke down and he wept over it. We see in the book of John when Lazarus dies that Jesus stopped and he wept over his friend who died. He knew what the human experience is and he knew what it was to feel pain and to be broken. We see that again when he went to the temple and he overturned the the tables of the moneylenders, he was angry. He said, what are you doing to my father's house? This is not the way things should be. And we see this again in the Garden of Gethsemane where he full-on sweats blood because he's saying, God, I don't want to do this. Is there anything else? And God says, no. But Jesus said, okay, not my will, but your will be done. And that is the pattern... That's our. That's that's our savior. That's our. That's our, the one that we follow. That's the one who. Calls us his. And. He is our. Um, he is our example through it. And what, the end of his life, the cross. He's the one that calls us to die to ourselves, to find him. But he also is the one that tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's the one who gives us grief and helps us bear them and walks with us through each stage that we go through. In the Bible, I love reading the Psalms because they're so raw. You you read the psalmist starting off raging and, you know, lifting up their fists and going, I am angry, I am mad, I am upset, and by the end of it going... And God is still God, and I will still praise you. You have that sense that they're walking through these stages of grief and projecting it to God and letting God minister to their hearts and speak to him through that, through that whole process, even when it's messy, right? Uh, Jason, a couple weeks, talked about the story of Elijah in his season of burnout where Elijah sees this mighty miracle happen and then gets super depressed and whines and says, the world is ending, right? And what does God do? He meets him in that place and says, take a nap eat some food, and then we'll talk, right? And there's that wisdom to that. There's those times that we, you know, it's not that he's telling Elijah that, oh, stop raging at me. He's saying, no, you rage. When you've finally gotten it out of your system, then we can talk. And then I'm going to tell you truth and tell you, show you where you were off. But you still need to get the rage out of your system before you could even begin to hear truth the way that God was trying to communicate it. And it's very similar to what I did with with my children, Right? They're going to rage. They're gonna get snot all over my shirt. They're gonna throw themselves on the ground. I'm gonna pick them up and hold them until they stop crying. And I can say, it's okay, you're gonna be fine. I still love you even if I don't let you play with knives. Right? But that's what God does with us so many times. He's with us, he holds us, he says, you rage away. I'm here, I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna speak to you through it even when you don't think I am even when it doesn't feel like I am, I am still here in the midst of it. And he can take it, right? He can take it each season. He knows. He built you. He knows you're going to feel anger. He knows you're going to feel depression. He knows you're going to feel that denial. He knows all the stages of grief. He's walked through them. And He built you to be able to also walk through them as part of the process needed for healing and acceptance and being able to move on. Because if you don't, you don't, like, you know, pretending your arm isn't amputated isn't going to help you recover from an amputated arm, right? You just got to work with it <laughs> and go through the process and be healed from it. There's, sometimes in a process of grief, people come, to people express love in different ways. Some people have heard of this in love languages. But when we come alongside people in grief, sometimes people need different things, and sometimes we express our love to them in different ways. I've really appreciated the people that have showed up when I'm having a hard time, and there's some people that show up with a box of tissues, and they don't say a word, and they just sit there. That's invaluable. There's other people. They show up with a casserole and a mop, <laughs> feed me and clean my house. <laughs> I appreciate those ones too. I have some other friends who will listen to me and then say, Tara, you're being an idiot. (laughs) I appreciate those ones too that are gonna speak the hard truths when I don't wanna hear it because I need that too. Sometimes I need someone just as that sounding board to be able to say, you're wrong. You're, You're grieving, I appreciate you, I love you, I appreciate your struggles, but you're wrong. And then there's the other people who say, I can't believe you went through that. That's not right, we need to change the world. And they're gonna bat, (laughs) they're gonna show up with a baseball bat to break down (laughs) whoever's causing problems, right? I appreciate those people too. All of those people are needed at different times and different seasons. And as people around me also have gone through hard times, I have to be sensitive about what are the things that are helpful and what are the things that aren't. What do they need in this particular season that they're in? And sometimes I haven't done a good job at being sensitive to that. And there's been some times where later on I'm like, oh, why did I say that, right? Because there's sometimes times where people really don't want to hear that all will be well. It's like, you're going to tell me that, I'm going to punch you in the face right now, because I don't feel like it's all going to be well. I mean, it will, but I don't necessarily want you telling me that, right? Other times I want to hear that. And that's the complication of like, really, how do we sensitively and come up with people at the right time and the right way and the right place to be able to speak what they need to hear? because sometimes it's not fixable. We see this in the book of Job, where Job was a guy who had everything, God took it all away, and then the, most, the majority of the book is his friends telling him why God did what he did, even though they're wrong. And so at the end of the book, Job experiences God. God shows up and doesn't tell him why God did what he did. He just shows up, and, God, and Job just sits there and goes, I have seen God. I am small. (laughs) I will repent in dust and ashes. Mm -hmm. In that experience of, like, Job had genuine reasons to grieve. He had lost everything for really no good reason except that God had allowed Satan to take everything away. And at the end of the day, Job had to just say, and God is still God and I am not and that's enough. And Job's friends didn't fix things. They weren't They weren't able to give Job what he needed at that point because they wanted to be able to have the band-aid fixes. This is why. If you do this and this and this, this is how you fix everything. And with grief, there really isn't any, if you do these ten steps, everything will be fine and you can move on with your life, right? And that's, when we go through those times of grief too, there's those times that we just can't get over it quickly. It'd be nice if we could. Like, All I need to do is, you know, if I spend five days here, five days here, five days here, and do this and this and this, then I'll be over it. We can move on with our life and everything will be fine. But it doesn't work like that. It's messy. Uh, In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk spends a lot of time arguing with God over what's happened to Jerusalem and to the people of God. He's like, God, why did you let all these bad things happen? Why has my home been destroyed? Why are our people suffered? Why have you let evil nations do bad things to us? And God answers him back every time. And in the third chapter, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. Um, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. I love this verse because Habakkuk is saying, things are a mess. We don't have food. I don't see how it's going to be fixed. I have no evidence that things will get better. And God is still God. In the midst of this loss, in the midst of this hard time that our people are going through, God is still God, and that's enough. And, But he had to go through the process of raging at God for a while and asking the hard questions and listening for the answers. I remember I had a friend in high school who had a family member die, and after that, he walked away from God, and I was so sad because when he experienced death, he was so shocked and surprised that he experienced death Death, that his family member wouldn't live forever. That he said that God was no longer God. And so instead of wrestling with the pain and the grief with God, he wrestled away from God. It didn't make the person come any more alive, and it didn't change the nature of death, but it did rob him of the opportunity to grow in depth and to be like my kids in their temper tantrums, being held by me as they make a mess over my shirt. Right? And that was one of the things that I was sad about for a very long time because I grieved over his loss of faith, over his walking away from the presence of God. And that's the thing with the process of grief is we have the opportunity to dig in closer to God and other people or the opportunity to say, no, I refuse. I don't want to walk this journey. This is not... This is not the way that I think things should go, and I want to change them and not have to go through that again. There was a season of my life where I had to walk through a season of, of pretty intense grief. My, when I was in college, my family divorced, and... That process for a long time was very, very hard, because for me it was the death of a family, a collective unit, a sense of identity. This, this, I had a place that I considered home and a safe haven, and it was all of a sudden gone. And so, so many layers of identity, of community relationships, of memories, of traditions were all of a sudden no longer in existence. And for, initially, you know, it's, you never know quite who you are until you grieve, and then you find out parts of yourself that you didn't necessarily know were there. Right? Uh, I'm usually an introvert. Init- initially, when that happened, I became an extrovert. I was like, I got to get out of the house. I'm gonna go. <laughs> like, I don't care where we're going. Are we gonna stay up to three in the morning night surfing? I'm there. I've never night surfed. I'm scared of sharks. I don't care. <laughs> I just need to get out of the house. And I would sit with people that I wouldn't normally become friends with until late into the night and we wouldn't talk about a single thing serious, we would just laugh because I needed to laugh. I just needed to be with people to somehow pretend things were okay when they weren't. That was a season that I would drive with Linkin Park blasting as loud as I possibly could (laughs) when I hadn't listened to Linkin Park ever before simply because that's what I needed in that season. And it was a season where it's like, I'm going to wear makeup every day, even though I never did before, simply because I want to pre- pretend I look good on the outside, even if I feel terrible on the inside. And that was the season. And that was part of what I needed to do to heal. Later on, I had to deal with the anger, right? There was years later, because I, you know, God took me out of the country for a few years. So, you know, denial catches up with you. Eventually, you have to go through it, whether you want to or not, <laughs> even if you want to put it off for a while. And so then there's a season of anger of like, why, if, you know, I'm going to be mad about this. And I would have some people be like, why are you mad? This doesn't affect you. I'm like, no, you do not invalidate the importance of my family in my life by telling me I shouldn't grieve over what's lost. And it was that sense of my inner sense of justice saying, you never know something is important until it's not there. And I will tell you that this is something that was vitally important to me. And I, wouldn't be mad about it if it wasn't important, right? And so having other people tell me I had the freedom to be angry was very freeing. And after I was angry, I could move into other things. I don't know if I went through bargaining. There was definitely the depression stage too. But then eventually you find the rage is over, the the grief can move on to other things, not like it's ever fully over. Like, you still miss things, right? When someone is gone in your life who used to be there, you're always going to miss them in a certain way. But you know how to handle it, you grow around it, you know how to adjust. You know how to, you know, you lose a leg, you know how to adjust to having one leg. Not that you don't miss the leg, it's just you've learned how to do crutches better, right? And so that's that process. But it wasn't helpful for me to be told, you shouldn't feel what you're feeling, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't go through the process of grief. It's like, no. I need to go through the process of grief because that's the only way that I'm going to heal. Even if you don't understand why I'm going through it, it's still a necessary part of the process. And God is still God in the middle of it. Through all of that, that's the beautiful promise of God is that it doesn't matter what the world throws at you, the worst things possible, you can be in the middle of the darkest, deepest season and God is still God. And he weeps too. That's right. That's right. We're designed after him. He looks at the status of the world and says, I don't want there to be evil and pain and suffering and death either. <laughs> like, I didn't want this, and I'm weeping as well. However, he also says that he's with us through it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, that is a promise, not a happy promise. <laughs> in Psalm 23, it talks about, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not if, though. Yes, that's it. Right. We live in a world where we are under the shadow of death. That's a reality. We don't need to be surprised by it. We will experience it. And in the midst of it, we have the comfort from God. Not that that makes it easier, not that it makes it somehow magically go away, not that it makes it less painful. But we still have that promise. Because when it happens, as we will all experience, we have God going through it with us. Now, I want to um, spend a couple minutes just in prayer and silence just giving you the opportunity to reflect on what are the things that you're grieving? What are the things, maybe it's a change of role, of life stage, of identity, a, a loss of person, a loss of a paradigm of how you thought the world worked. Um, and just think over what are the things that you need to take the time to grieve? Because you have to take the time to do it. It doesn't magically do it on its own. You've got to take the time, the space, deal with it, write it out to God, tell God, speak of it, own it. Say, this is what I feel like I have lost. And take the time to forgive those who have hurt you and forgive those and ask for God to forgive you for the people that you have hurt in the process because we have and we can't really move through it until we let go of those things that we're holding on to. And be willing to let God change you through the process and meet you in it and speak to you. Ask him what it is that he wants to speak to you in the midst of your change, your loss, your brokenness. Let me pray for you. God, we just thank you that you are with us and that you are God and that you are greater than all evil, that that death cannot hold on to us, that pain cannot hold us down because you are with us and you are God. We just pray that you would help us to be able to walk with this, walk with you through this process and have you change us. We thank you that you are faithful and that you promise never to leave us or forsake us. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.